You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I survived yet another trip to the Pacific Northwest, went to my sister's wedding, drank all the wine, and now I'm back in my apartment and my real world for another episode. Also very glad I'm not going to have to edit this on the road because I am very bad at remembering my mouse and it is a bitch to edit a podcast using a trackpad. No movie theater movie reviews this week as I had to reacclimate to the same time zone. I don't know why I get jet lagged when I'm traveling within the same time zone, but I do. So the only time I got out of the house this week was because I was already at work and it was for a Fast 10 screening, but because it was a work screening, I don't review those. I will say, though, that was only like the third of those movies I've seen. Jason Momoa was really good in it. And they do say family as many times as the internet makes fun of, which I thought was just the internet, you know, exaggerating things. They, no, they do really say it that many times. And then when they, when the writers clearly thought like, we've probably said family too many times in this scene, they just changed it to the people you care about or um, me familia. They're like, it's the same thing. You just, you just picked a different word. But yeah, that was a thing. I I don't get the appeal of those guys. (laughs) Every, they are. It was a fun, dumb movie, but damn. I guess I'm reviewing it now, huh? Oops. Anyway, to give an update for since it's this month's theme, the WGA strike has just finished its third week. No real headway has been made that I've read about or anything that's really been in the trades, though I have been a little out of the loop. Took a cursory look, not really seeing anything about, you know, renegotiations. The AMPTP is busy because they've got the DGA one going on right now, so God only knows when they're going to circle back to the WGA. The strikers were picketing the upfronts this past week, which is when studios, it's mainly for television, I think, or at least in my experience, uh, it's basically when the, the studios try to entice advertisers to pay ad money for their shows and their things. And they do that by kind of having like the stars of these shows sort of show up. And I think the company I work for, not this year, I haven't seen this year's one yet, but last year they had like, I think it was Miley Cyrus sing at it. Like they, they it's a very show-stoppy, glitzy event that these, that these companies put on to try and entice advertisers. So obviously the WGA was all up in that because they were essentially promoting things that these people that are on strike had written. So that's kind of where we're at right now. And not only does the WGA strike not have an end in sight at this very moment, but on Wednesday or Thursday of this past week, SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors union, uh, made a call for a vote to authorize a strike for their union. So we'll see what happens there. The issues that they have are very similar to what the WGA has and what the DGA has. DGA has got less of an issue with the AI, but with actors, it's uh, pay residuals, mainly streaming residuals. 
And now the actors are also probably going to have to contend directly with AI because they've been reporting that there have been AI clauses popping up in their contracts for employment, which essentially would allow a studio to take their voice, their likeness, whatever they have of the actor, and potentially use it again in another performance without paying that actor for using, you know, their whole, you know, being without them actually being involved. Given that that's pretty much an actor's job is being there and being involved and being a character, it's not sitting so well, as you might imagine. Shocking, I know, that they, they you know, they want to be actors. Um, well, but I don't know why anyone would choose that job other than, like, you know, what they think that job's going to be, which is only, like, 20 people in the whole world. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but, yeah, so um, DGA talks are continuing. Not much to update there that's been made public. But if three unions all end up going on strike simultaneously, that is going to be absolute bedlam and the first time that's ever happened. There was a writer strike and a SAG strike that overlapped a little bit back in, I think it was the 60s, if I'm remembering from two weeks ago. But there have never been three strikes simultaneously happening in Hollywood at once since like the events that we're kind of going to allude to today when all the little little strikes were happening. But these are three major established unions. So it's going to be if that does happen, I, I can't imagine the AMPTP would let that happen. And if they do, it would definitely bring into question like the legitimacy of using a trade association like that, because clearly if they let three unions go on strike, they're not doing their job well. And it also does bring, of course, into question the idea of corporate greed. But, you know, baby steps. It's yeah, Ugh, I just the horns. Anyway, let's get on to this week's topic. This week, if you saw the episode name, we're not talking about getting crazy discounts the day after Thanksgiving, but a different kind of Black Friday. One whose events led to an all-out brawl in front of one of the biggest Hollywood studios, which would eventually lead to legislation being put in place to limit the power of the union. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. So before we get into our story today, let's go into a little bit into who some of the players are, because every time I dip my toe into this story leading up to actually having to like sit down this week and actually like hardcore go into it, I got overwhelmed with acronyms and people and not a lot of the sources available online are super great for like filling in exactly what happened. They definitely skip around to the point where it's like, wait, what happened? Thankfully, I had a book. Uh, it was called Class Struggles in Hollywood, 1930 to 1950, which was unbelievably helpful in filling in the gaps. So I wanted to shout out the book. It's actually, it's a little bit academic, but it is, it is very interesting, especially if you're, if you're interested in anything that I've covered in these last two weeks, but specifically what I'm covering this week, that book is a hefty, hefty resource. I would recommend reading it very caffeinated and with all your mental faculties. I, I feel like I've done a good job. I'm not confused anymore. And luckily, if you listened the last couple of weeks, you already know who some of these people are. 
So as World War II was slowly but surely coming to an end, American moving picture attendance was at an all-time high. As a result, the movie industry was making a boatload of money. Money that the moguls were not eager to share with the people who they'd hired to actually make those movies. We've gone over this. This, of course, would lead to our unions. But in these early days of the unions, this is still, 40s is still pretty early days for the unions. There were a ton of them all fighting for turf over the workers of this booming industry. So by the time our story starts, takes place, the Conference of Studio Unions, or CSU, as we'll call them going forward, was a branch of the American Federation of Labor. Since we'd seen them last in last week's episode, they'd become an international union which protected the rights of Carpenters, the United Painters 644, the Screen Cartoonists Guild, a group of electricians, laborers, amongst a few others. The CSU was led by Herbert K. Sorrell, a former boxer and member of the Motion Picture Painters Local 644. As you may remember from last week, he led the Screen Cartoonist Guild in the strike against the Walt Disney Studio. The CSU had formed out of necessity, as the more powerful stagehands union in town had some, let's call it infrastructure problems. That union, of course, was IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which we, of course, learned two weeks ago originated as a theater union before coming to represent film crews. IATSE had been the stronghold union in Hollywood since the 1920s and also just happened to be a super duper corrupt and throughout the era leading up to our tale today was run by Willie Byoff, a Chicago gangster. You may remember his name from last week. Bayoff was known for using violent threats to get contracts with studios. However, in 1941, Bayoff and other mobsters were charged with corruption and tax evasion, which is like the only thing they ever catch these people on, leading to union members attempting to remove Bayoff and his cohorts from power in IATSE. It didn't much matter, though, because it was so thoroughly corrupt, and IATSE remained pretty corrupt even with Bayoff gone and reverted to even more fraudulent negotiating practices. Bayoff's successor was Richard F. Wolf, who became president after Bayoff, but he's not going to be the major player we're going to be talking about today from IATSE. That person was actually Roy Brewer, who had come to Hollywood in 1945 as IATSE's international representative. Brewer had two missions. First, to maintain IATSE's control on Hollywood labor and to purge all union ranks of any communist influence, a.k.a. he was after Sorrell. Despite rampant accusations from multiple people throughout the years, Sorrell was not a communist, but he had stated several times that he was happy to spend their money. This distinction hardly mattered to Brewer or anybody who decided they didn't like Sorrell, which was a lot of people. The 1940s was a tumultuous time when it came to labor relations between the workers and the executives, leading to several small strikes throughout this era. At this time, there were multiple unions for each job speciality, all fighting to be recognized by the studios. But the studios really only wanted to bargain with one union per speciality. The preference would be zero unions, but of course they had recognized by this point that that was not going to be an option. Herein lies a big part of the problems the people in our story will face today, and it basically ended up boiling down to CSU versus IATSE and the studios. Likely due to the corruption or just dissatisfaction with their contracts, 77 set directors had broken away from IATSE to form the Society of Motion Picture Interior Decorators and ended up negotiating their own independent contract with some producers in town in 1937. 
the SMPID then joined the CSU in 1943, which meant that going forward, the CSU would represent them in their contract negotiations. IATSE was pissed that that had happened and started to interfere with the CSU's dealings. So now, the studios were about to have two warring unions when it came to representing set decorators. So if you don't know, a set decorator is responsible for designing and selecting like all the things, like all the props and other visual elements that will be placed on set to create a film's environment. Of course, it's a little bit more nuanced than that and then you work with other people. But for the sake of today, that's all you need to know. There are a ton of different jobs within that responsibility, of course. I believe we've got an episode about that. Yeah, there's a there's a production designer. It's it's very similar to that. I did a production designer episode. I totally remember the episodes I make, you guys. What are you talking about? Um, it's very similar to that. And as you might remember from that episode or with any department really within film, there are, you know, other jobs that either answer to that person or are involved in it. Like, you know, for example, carpenters, like carpenters are report to set decorators. So is that the same union? Is it not? And that's where we're going to fall into our, our things because the carpenters have a union and the set decorators have a union, but they're technically kind of the same thing. So shouldn't they be the same union? And and around and around we go. It was a massive circle jerk of ego and, and turf war and stuff like that. So, for example, in, within CSU, the set decorators were their own thing, but the set decorators that were a member of IOTSE were coupled in with the props people, and they also wanted them in the, the carpenters. I don't That didn't happen immediately. I think it happened down the line. I'd have to check. And, of course, so who was right over how these jobs should be broken up was a point of contention that would carry on for years. Studio management refused to bargain with CSU's set designers as IATSE claimed that they were the representatives of the set designers, despite the fact that CSU's group had the required number of members to be recognized by the studios. The producers recommended they go to the National Labor Relations Board to be certified formally. They did, but IATSE blocked them, once again claiming that set decorators belong to the prop union within their jurisdiction. The labor board told the CSU that they needed to work their shit out internally. Producers would manage to stall the negotiations for CSU and IATSE workers for nine months while this was happening, as IATSE continued to challenge CSU's jurisdiction over the set decorators, which led to an additional five-month delay. They did not realize, I guess, or didn't care that, you know, the producers were basically making them fight so they didn't have to, like, pay people better. And this fact was starting to piss off the underpaid workers, so some of them kind of went rogue a little bit. A few set decorators went on strike for two days in protest of the labor board's ruling, which caused the War Labor Board to get involved. What was the War Labor Board? Well, that was an agency established in 1942 to mediate labor disputes and maintain labor stability during World War II. You can't win a war if the workers on the plants making crucial supplies for that war went on strike. The board appointed an arbitrator to go through the CSU's claims in February 1945. He ruled in CSU's favor, but that hardly mattered as producers still refused to acknowledge the arbitration's findings and denied the fact that CSU did in fact have jurisdiction over the set decorators. This lack of recognition, which meant a lack of contract, set the stage for the strike. Picketing began in March in front of Warner Brothers, RKO, Columbia, Universal, Paramount, Fox, and MGM. Disney and some of the smaller studios had negotiated an agreement to keep the picketers off their doorsteps. 
The IATSE members did not join the strike, just the CSU ones, meaning they, in the eyes of CSU, were scabbing every time they passed the picket line, which many of them did on the daily. They were also filling the jobs the CSU people had left to strike. So yeah, that's that's scabbing, whether you agree with the strike or not. By definition, that was what they were doing. It should also be mentioned at this point that this strike was not called as the result of a vote, which is traditionally how it's done, rather because of the opinions of leadership within CSU, particularly by Sorrell, which would damage the legitimacy of the whole thing down the line. The moment the strike occurred, almost 60% of all film production was halted and 12,000 film workers were out of a job, in addition to who was striking. Not just, not just, that, was, that, that doesn't count the strikers. Protesters also targeted movie theaters across the country where they'd scream spoilers at potential moviegoers. They'd be like, so-and-so's the killer. Don't go inside. Wait, save your money. It was this person. This is how they did it. Legends. Um... <laughs> So soon, movie theaters dropped films made by quote-unquote unfair studios in order to preserve their business. CSU was joined by fellow union members from at least a dozen other unions, and it was the biggest ding to Hollywood film production up to that point. Producer Cecil B. DeMille called it, quote, more damaging than dropping 8 to 10 atomic bombs at the same moment. Like Walt Disney, DeMille would hold a lasting grudge as a result of this strike on his studio. D.W. Griffith, whose hostile work environment nearly 30 years earlier had caused one of the first Hollywood strikes, seemed to have learned his lesson by this point as he refused to cross the picket lines. This legendary director bending to the will of the picketers gave a ton of legitimacy to the strike. More progressive actresses like Betty Davis also refused to pass picket lines, but other actors didn't have a problem doing so. CSU began a blacklist of people who were crossing picket lines, particularly actors, and this list included Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, and Humphrey Bogart. Some would later complain about not being able to work because they'd crossed the lines, but overall there was no lasting damage for the high-ranking performers. I mean, Reagan became president. How much could he possibly have been punished? As a result of the strike, work on films including David O. Selznick's Duel in the Sun and Cary Grant's Night and Day slowed down or stopped entirely. The CSU wanted to ensure their picketers were seen as exemplary at the gates, they didn't want chaos, and issued a Ten Commandments of Picketing. Included in those rules were that they should always be in a straight line or a circle, refrain from swearing, and not scream the pros and cons of striking at people as they passed. By the by, what constituted as swearing was left to the protesters' discretion. As the months were on, protesters chanted outside of the gates of the studios, mainly Warner Brothers, they had the they got hit the hardest, as to their distaste of people attempting to force them into joining a union run by Chicago gangsters, but that didn't really seem to sway anybody in power, because it's the mob. Eventually, as it is one to do, shit started getting ugly, probably because a brewer in the studios doing some potentially off-the-book stuff. Could have been Sorrell. I doubt it, though, given the circumstances. Warner Brothers accused strikers of assaulting an usher at a movie theater in Hollywood, of which there was no concrete proof, while also having, quote, scantily clad ladies around to try and get servicemen to join picket lines instead of going to the pictures. Meanwhile, Brewer accused strikers of bombing the homes of people who crossed picket lines, a.k.a. IOTC members. He claimed five bombings and countless members of his union being attacked, like in their homes and in the street. Would you like to guess how many of these bombings were proven to be done by CSU or its members up to this point? That is correct. There was none. No one. They could never prove it. 
Sorrell would claim that he saw Bioff, who was out of jail and back in Los Angeles by this point, at the Hollywood Roosevelt one night chatting with, quote, four or five torpedoes whom specialized in splody things. Sorrell also found it highly suspect that not a single person was harmed in any of these five bombings, and every single victim was given a brand new home by the studios. We'll probably never know who actually orchestrated them, but I have a pretty good idea, and I don't think it was the CSU. A few weeks into the strike, IATSE threatened to have the projectionists, yep, they're still unionized to this day, projectionists have a union, go on strike, shuttering the theaters and cutting off their money if they caved to the CSU. The studios were stuck like a child between two parents going through a nasty divorce, if that child was Damien from The Omen, and thrived on mommy and daddy fighting. While the strike was, of course, mainly targeting the major studios, the strike was also beginning to affect the few independents that were around at this time, as they relied on the larger studios' lots for their productions. This meant that crews would have to cross picket lines despite not having a major dog in the fight. For some producers, they knew that there was a chance that some of the major studios that they had agreements with might not financially survive the strike. David Oselznik, for example, had an agreement with RKO, which was notorious for being a highly unstable studio. And by this point, I'm pretty sure Howard Hughes had it, so it was about to get way worse. And Selznick feared that if RKO went under, he'd be forced into dealing with Warner Brothers if his company could itself survive all of this. Unfortunately, CSU never thought to leverage this against the larger studios because they also relied on that money as well. Selznick's Gone with the Wind was the biggest film ever, and adjusting for inflation, it still is, and was primarily made by an independent studio. MGM was a financier as well, but Selznick was the one who did most of the stuff, and his next film was on hold until this worked itself out, so he was just, you know, sitting on his hands and blaming the unions more than the studios. And while they were the rich muckety-mucks of the day, and in a lot of ways, you know, kind of the villains of this story, the primarily Jewish movie moguls were targeted wrongfully by a tidal wave of anti-Semitism, especially the Warner Brothers. It was so bad that Jack Warner, who was a perpetual hard-ass, refused to go into his studio so long as the protesters were present. Of course, you know, anti-Semitism, very, very unacceptable. Like, you can just call them a dick. Like, don't, don't, don't be intolerant, too. Honestly, it just kind of cheapens your whole thing if you start getting, you know, intolerant. Anyway, by August, a boycott was called for quote-unquote hot films, a.k.a. films made during the strike, which was moderately successful. In September, six months into the strike, people began questioning the legitimacy of the CSU as there had never been a proper vote to actually have this strike happen. All the members are supposed to vote to approve it. The LA Times called the whole thing, quote-unquote, asinine, considering the fact that until incredibly recently, September 2nd, 1945 to be exact, the country had been at war. Sensing a shift in the tides, IATSE began preparing itself to snipe all the CSU members when the strike went south. While film production never ceased, the majority of A-list talent from all job descriptions and unions, even those who hadn't voted to endorse the CSU strike, were refusing to cross the picket lines because they were slowly getting rowdier, leading to a sharp decline in film quality. Plus, the studio's supply of banked films was beginning to run low. After the war had ended, more unions began supporting the strike, several even joined in. It seemed like CSU was actually gaining momentum, 
But in reality, the majority of the other unions were getting incredibly fed up with the whole thing. Plus, the CSU just never organized in a way to affect any major change. It was just basically a thorn in the side. The CSU eventually realized that they were stronger as a huge mass and began picketing at only a couple of studios each day. For whatever reason, Warner Brothers seemed to be their favorite target. The studios retaliated and managed to stop this from happening, getting an injunction limiting the number of strikers that could be present each day. Another blow happened not long after, as it came down from the state capitol that the strikers would not receive unemployment so long as they were on strike, which didn't bode well for their pocketbooks. Then, 37,000 studio employees across town lost their jobs as a result of the strike. They didn't have the money to pay these people anymore. So everybody was getting real pissed about the situation now because they had nothing to do with the strike and now they didn't have a job. In early October, IATSE and CSU went toe-to-toe once more in front of the labor board. Since all of the CSU strikers had been out of work and therefore not eligible to vote as a worker member of any union, IATSE tried to clinch a win to be recognized as the union. The CSU didn't have any legitimate workers. They hadn't worked in six months. And the CSU had to make sure that this didn't happen. Meanwhile, in a move of solidarity, CSU never got amongst themselves and the other unions. The moguls were planning to financially support Warner if it came to it, as they bore the brunt of the strike and the disruptions. They wanted to ensure the studios stay afloat, while hopefully these unions would eat each other alive. By October 5th, money and patience was running extremely low as some 300 strikers gathered at Warner Brothers' main gate. Instead of a balmy autumn day, as was average of this time of year, L.A. was uncharacteristically hot. The picketers assembled as they'd done for months, starting at 4 a.m., just in time for the non-strikers to attempt to report to work at 6 a.m. But this morning was different, as that morning, when the barricades went up, Tensions were running as hot as the day was fixing to be. Suddenly, the strikers were attacked by picket crossers, quote-unquote goons, and even the county police. These people were reportedly armed with chains, pipes, and battery cables. Officers in riot gear and tear gas also attacked the picketers shortly thereafter. After that, fire hoses sweeping the protesters' feet out from under them occurred. As replacement workers attempted to drive through the ensuing chaos, four of their cars were stopped and overturned by riled-up picketers. Reinforcements arrived for both sides by 6 a.m. as the picket line increased to about a 1,000 people. Glendale and Los Angeles police had to come to aid the Burbank police and Warner Security, who were reportedly throwing gas bombs, attempting to maintain the peace. When more replacement workers attempted to break through the gates, a general melee ensued. Warner Security used more tear gas, now raining it down from the roofs of the building across the entrance. By the end of the day, some 300 police and deputy sheriffs had been called to the scene. 43 strikers and two cops were injured, and somehow nobody died. The picketers returned the following Monday with an injunction barring the police from interfering with the striking, and Warner Brothers retaliated with its own injunction, further limiting the number of picketers allowed at the gate. Chaotic events happened in front of other studios that week, some got moderately violent, but national exposure forced the warring unions back to the bargaining table, which resulted in an end to the strike on October 29th. While they technically quote-unquote won, no one really won, the CSU victory was a hollow one. Yes, they would now be seen as the bargainers for the set directors, but nothing else was really solved. The strikers would get their jobs back, 
but issues over wording dictated by an AFL arbitration team would lead to further questioning as to CSU and IOTC jurisdiction on sets, especially after the IOTC workers were told they were being replaced after replacing the CSU workers who were now returning to their jobs. This did not sit well with them. Suddenly, IOTC members who'd supported CSU also found themselves unable to get work. Through all this, CSU and IOTC had neglected to solve the issue of where exactly a set director fit in within all of this union mess, which was basically the initial issue. Several individuals were forced to turn to crime to make up for the seven months of lost wages and the inability to find work. One individual even went on a crime spree, resulting in him breaking into over 70 safes, so he's very good. And of course, many others still had court dates pending over what had happened in October 1945, so financial hardships were far from over for many of them. CSU was ultimately fingered as a communist organization and a violent one to boot. Open fighting between CSU members and studio security, coupled with a vote by SAG leading to them turning their back on CSU, destroyed the union's efforts. The CSU would never recover from the strike, but continued to limp along. Less than a year after all this chaos, in July 1946, Sorrell and CSU called another strike. The studios responded by laying off all machinists, as well as some painters and carpenters with CSU ties in response. This time, nearly no one, including IOTC workers, would cross the lines. They remembered what happened less than a year earlier. And within two hours, CSU got their workers a 25% pay raise. This victory would also be a hollow one. Two months later, a fight between IOTSE and CSU over whether IOTSE grips or CSU carpenters controlled set building led to the major studios just fully locking out CSU workers. They were over it, and the studios knew CSU did not have the financial ability to knock them around anymore. This lockout effectively forced CSU workers off sets without the union ever officially declaring a strike, but some unrest did occur. There was violence, there was some strife, publications, including the LA Times, reported on beatings, clubbings, smashed windows, home break-ins, and Molotov cocktails for good measure. Picketers were arrested en masse and carted off to jail. Some of the unions were forced to return back to work despite the threat of violence, but others had the IOTSE workers take over the duties of anyone who did not return. Those people were expelled from the painters and the carpenters' union. By the end of 1947, CSU was a hollow shell of what it had been just two years earlier. Somewhere between three to 5,000 CSU workers were blocked from working, and 4,000 IOTSE workers were suffering a similar fate. Historians estimate that while the studios probably lost hundreds of millions of dollars, the striking workers lost about $17 million in wages from all of this. That's about $265 million in today's money. The fallout of the original picketing was not fully resolved until December 1948, when the final fines and jail time were doled out for people's actions during the strike. By November 1950, there was not a strike to be seen in Hollywood for the first time in nearly a decade. In 1952, the Painters' Union, Sorrell's Painters' Union specifically, had their charter revoked, and they were told to find another affiliation to represent them. CSU would sue the studios and IOTC claiming a joint conspiracy to get them disbanded, but CSU would lose this suit in 1956, which marked the official end for the CSU. 
The fallout of the strike that caused Hollywood's Black Friday, in part, led to the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed by the help of the studio's lobbying and by accusations of the alleged Communist Party membership of Sorrel. The act limited union power in an attempt to end the large-scale strikes that were happening all over the U.S. while restricting supposed communistic influence. While SAG would briefly go on strike in 1952 over pay, another major Hollywood strike was not seen for 17 years after the end of the initial CSU strike. The second Red Scare, coupled with the HUAC trials, didn't hurt stopping this from happening either. It was just simply too risky to go on strike and be labeled a communist because then you would for sure never work again. To this day, IATSE remains the major union for the craftspeople of Hollywood, no longer the corrupt institution they once were. They have also never gone on strike. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son And I'll stick with the Union till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a Union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I had a Diet Cherry Coke this morning because I didn't get started till noon because the microphone wouldn't map to my computer. So that was a fun panic for about an hour there. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, we're going into the last time Hollywood experienced a major strike. And that was the 2007-2008 WGA strike. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on?